Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Scottish Indie Podcast. Tonight, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome along the guitarist from one of my favourite Scottish bands, Rab from Las Vegas. Thank you very much for joining me. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me. Well, we'll get the, the standard question out the road first, shall we? It's been a exceptionally difficult time for, for so many of us and it's been growing for so long as well. Yeah. How are you getting on and, and how's the family after all the uncertainty of the, of the last 14 months or so? Okay, do you know what? It's been the same. I guess things for me have has been the same as everybody else. It's just kind of been ups and downs. Um, I am quite lucky that I've had loads to do during lockdown, which I think has probably helped. I think if I was sitting on my on my bum doing nothing, it would have been a lot more difficult. But I've I've been kept busy, so um, yeah, the end is in sight. Hopefully, so I think you know some gigs will be coming back. People get to hang out with their friends again. It's Things are at least starting to look up, which is good. What? How, how about yourself? How, how was your lockdown? Uh, I've been lucky in the, the sense that I've, I've worked through uh, the vast majority of it, it must be said. the I think it's just kind of striving to find a routine is, is very difficult. Uh, exactly. Do you know what? That's the word I was looking for when I was saying I've kept myself busy. I've managed to keep in a routine. That is exactly it. So, yeah, I think that's that's definitely helped. It's, it's it's let me discover a lot of music and a lot of television uh, that I possibly wouldn't have had the chance to watch. But if I, I have to watch another kind of Stoke City versus Bournemouth game or something like that, then I'm going to just give it all up. <laughs> oh, I feel your pain. So in terms of you saying you, you'd found a routine in, in getting to work, uh, Godspeed released last month, the first album released in eight years, and it's been down a, a storm. You must be really pleased after a bit of time away from from recording and releasing music that the response has been so positive and the the fanfare still exists after all those years i know i mean i guess the thing is i guess you never know what's going to happen when you release music you know and and that goes for anybody it's like james is totally oblivious when he's writing songs he never tries to write something that someone's going to like because I think you would drive yourself mad doing that. He just kind of get, needs to get the little ideas out that are in his head. Um, and I mean, we did, we started recording this quite a while ago. Then James moved to Stockholm and then things kind of just picked up again. I mean, we had the album ready to release a couple of years ago. It was supposed to come out just as the first lockdown happened. We were just about to announce a UK tour, a European tour, all, all of these things. And our manager was like, I think we should maybe just put, like, press pause on this for a while which luckily luckily we did do that so um so yeah i'm just really happy it's out really happy people like it i've only seen one person say it's shit which is quite good for us um so yeah and i mean but but that but but kind of looking forward to new music already as well which is quite strange but i don't know if i'm supposed to talk about that so let's move on (laughs) (laughs) and and it's shit for detailed feedback as well you can do a lot with that and really working and improving things with uh, with such analysis. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Do you know I like I like that. It, it was uh, it was uh, they, they really expanded on their points well with just the shit comments. So yeah, <laughs> you've got a lot to work on there. Uh, so maybe cut this short and just leave you to it. <laughs> that that one for me covers a fair range of emotion and, and crosses into so many different genres and styles as well. It's it's a journey in, in quite a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. 
I know. I mean, like even for me, I've I've been living with the album for quite a while. I run, so when I run, I've been listening to it to make sure like the running orders right and all of these kind of different things. And I, I really genuinely believe it's 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 a great album because I, I, like you, I listen to a lot of music. Um, I could be biased in that, but it, it does cover a lot of different emotions. I think it's quite a dark album, maybe because I know what some of the songs are about and kind of where James was kind of going with them lyrically. Um, I think it's maybe one of the darkest ones, actually, to be honest, in terms of the, the, the kind of lyrical content. But I, I love, the, I love the, the sounds on it. I love the music. It's kind of got about a, a, a kind of 80s twinge with some of the keyboard sounds that we put on it and some of the guitars and stuff, which I, I'm really into that. So I was happy when, when, I, when I heard some of that happening. How much has the release of the album kind of served as a boost for the band? It's, it's obviously come at a time You've released it at a time where there's a lot of difficult and uncertain times within the industry. Does that reaction provide a wee bit of reassurance for you guys that that things will be okay and that the demand and the, the popularity is still there? I think I think the thing is when you release new music, you never know if anyone's going to like it, even though you've got fans. You know, we've got like a really small, dedicated fan base around the world who are just incredible. And there's that group of fans that will always buy anything, no matter what we do, because they just love the band. But then there's the other group who are kind of on the fence. And I guess, I guess that, I mean, for me, I think I feel the uncertainty probably more than than what James does, because James doesn't do social media or anything. But I guess because it had been seven years, eight years, um, it's like, had people forgot about us or, you know, was anyone going to bother with it or anything? Because I guess what we do as a band is pretty different to what is popular just now. I guess if you want to say that in popular music, what the, the thing that we do and the kind of songs that James writes, it's not it's not like a cool thing for people to like. Um, but yeah, as as I said, the, the reaction is, it's kind of cemented the fact that we should make more, more music i guess maybe that's the question you were asking and that's and then so then there's hope for the future and all these kind of things as well so yeah <laughs> and the first album that's been released on your own label as well go Wild records yep a- a- another step towards a bit of independence and kind of really you've got the the freedom there to to really express yourselves well i mean that was the thing because we we, we recorded the album on our, on our own we had no money from anyone. We just went ahead and did it all. So then when it came to releasing it, a manager was like, you know, I spoke to this label, I spoke to that label, blah, blah. And we were like, but they're going to take at least half the money that we make from the album, even though they've had no input on it financially being made. So like, we're, as I said, I know we've got a core group of fans who's going to buy things that we do. So I'd rather take 100% of the money and do it our way then put it into someone else's hands and you don't know if they're trying their best or if they even like the music and stuff like that, do you know what I mean? So instead we kind of built a team, we hired a press person and we hired this person and this person, put our own little team together, people we knew loved the band and did it that way. James did all the artwork, we paid to have everything made ourselves, all the physical stuff, all the merch, we paid to have all that done. It just feels like the right time to do that, I think, because I think in the past we didn't do that and it was just different. So, yeah, I think it was the right time. What we'll do just now, if you don't mind, we'll work our way back and look at some of the highlights you've had as a band. And it's, it's clearly taken so much graft to, to get to where you are today and, and to have that freedom to express yourselves and do yeah. things completely on your own terms. 
Mm-hmm. You, you started out and there was a number of years gigging around the country before, I guess, what was a, a big breakthrough moment in the terms of being discovered by Alan McGee at King Tut's mm-hmm. and doing a series of shows with uh, Dirty Pretty Things following that. Yeah. They, Alan McGee, obviously a, a pivotal name in the, the history of the, the Scottish indie music scene. That's uh, that's getting off to a, a good start or being discovered by someone at the right time there. Do, do you know what? It's, it's it's a funny thing, right? So the, the Alan McGee thing's amazing. And he's like, I call him Uncle Alan. He's just like, he, he's, he's like the uncle that's always there, like the wise Buddha, who's always got the best, you know, advice or whatever. But do you know what? It was funny because it wasn't Alan that discovered us. And it, I, I've never actually thought it like this before. And it was just what you were saying. It was James's sister that discovered the band. Because James's sister still manages us just now. She she was the, a manager way back, and she heard something in the songs that nobody else did. She knew that there was something there, and then it was Denise that got Alan involved. But if it hadn't came from Denise, I guess do you know what I mean? And now Denise and Alan both manage the band together, which is kind of like a mad. It's kind of came full circle. Wow, I wasn't aware of that at all. <laughs> yeah, Alan's been working with the band maybe for about a year now. Um, he, he's, I guess his official title is manager, but we kind of, he's, he's more like a kind of guru, kind of just like a good guy to kind of have around. Um, and he's, he's just great for advice. He's, he's obviously got his own creation thing happening with the singles, and he's just started his own uh, album label as well. But uh, yeah, I mean those early days with Alan was so important because he just believed in the band so much. I think having somebody in your corner, he, he was like a, a pure rabid dog that just barked about the band to everyone. And I think when you bark enough, people start paying attention. And we were really lucky to have that. And then, as you said, through Alan, we got really good friends with Carol from Dirty Pretty Things. And there was just so many things that snowballed after that. But the thing is, when Alan got involved, we already had Daddy's Gone. We had Flowers and Football Tops. We had like half the first album we were playing live. So it's not like Alan came in and, and there was nothing there. There was like a, there was, the, I think we were playing at least six songs from the first album at that point. Um, we'd all quit our jobs. We bought a transit van. We put a mattress in the back and we would just drive up and down the UK with amps falling on us during the night. It was just that, you know, that was, that was kind of what was happening. The, the one thing I, I can remember in terms of, XFM in, in Scotland had just started about about that point. I can remember Jim Geltley uh, playing Go Square Go. That's right, and yeah. And then there was uh, at Camperdown Park, the big weekend, the Radio 1 show, and that was the first time I'd seen you live. And the, the crowd there, it was folk knew the words, and, and folk seemed to, to be really on board with it. And it, it came as a bit of a surprise, to be honest, because you're going along to a, a festival put on by... BBC Radio 1, you're expecting a, a certain type of clientele. I mean, do you know what? See, see those really early gigs when, when people were coming along and singing the songs like that? Nobody was more surprised than us <laughs> because we're not that kind of band. We're not like that kind of, come on, everybody, clap your hands and sing along. It's like, well, quite a dour, um, kind of moody band. And for some reason, that first album and their songs just connected with people on on such a level that even like now we just before lockdown we played a, a charity gig in Firewater in Glasgow. I was there, yeah. Oh were you there, right? And yeah. see when everyone started singing It's Mountain Heart that made me cry, I nearly burst into tears. 
and I don't know why. And it, that kind of thing still gets me, even now, because I, I just think, I don't like we don't deserve this. Like this is when people act like this, it's so fucking special. And we and we never take it for granted. We never took it for granted like twelve years ago or however long it was. And we still don't take it for granted now because it's such an amazing thing that people want to do that. Come along, invest their time, listen to the songs first of all, and then come along and pure lose their shit at a gig. It's like it's like it sounds pure corny and cheesy, but it is just like pure living the dream. Do you know what I mean? Like if somebody had said to me when I was a kid, you know, this is going to happen, I'd have been like, fuck off. That's never going to happen. And, and it, it does all the time. It's just bizarre. But there's actually, I'm, I'm just kind of looking at the, the notes I've got scribbled down here and there's a bit further down, but I'm going to just jump to it right now. Okay. There's, I was kind of looking at the history and the, the kind of gig listings and just my own memories of being a Las Vegas fan. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, see if you were to start out, like say four guys that, 17 are starting a band tomorrow and they write a bucket list out mm-hmm. some of the things that you guys have achieved or most of the things that you would write down on that bucket list I think you guys achieved in the first two or three years as a following the, the release of the album yeah. that all kind of happened to you guys it, it was incredible do you know what this is a funny thing and I, and I always talk to people about this it's so like we had like massive success with the first album. It was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. And then after that, the success wasn't as good. And loads of people struggle with that. But the way that I look at it is that I did get to do all of those things. I'm not I'm not uh, jealous or negative or anything that they didn't continue. I just feel lucky that I did get to do all of those things. Do you know what I mean? Because as you said, it was like, if somebody had said, you're going to travel the world, you're going to play all these festivals, you're going to sell over a million albums, you're going to tour with U2 and Oasis and King and all of these things. I, I would never have believed them. Do you know what I mean? I would never have believed them. And it is probably my working class upbringing as well and the way that I was brought up that you're kind of told these things don't happen to people like us. That probably had something to do with it as well. But I'm just really grateful that they did happen. And I'm glad that they happened to a band like us because I think before us, it was quite difficult for working class bands to break through. And now I'm seeing it all the time with bands like the Snuts and different bands for Scotland, which is absolutely incredible. But um, yeah, I think that that's It's it. almost kind of encouraging people to have their dreams. I think I think as, as Scottish people, it's, it's maybe ingrained in our, our mindset that we can't we can't always do better or yeah don't get don't get carried away with your your expectations, whether that be in education, whether that be in a sporting sense, or, or just in your your working life, you people that that strive for more are, are sometimes looked down upon in a, a strange way. Like, uh, they're, they're too arrogant, or they're too cocky. Or, Do you know what? You're not. You're, you're absolutely right. And and I notice that when I leave Scotland, and especially the west of Scotland, I see it, and and I. I, I don't know what it is, but it was. I remember, like, I would say, like, I thought my band was good, and people would go, like, "Oh, he's, he's, he must be an asshole, or he's arrogant, or he's this." It's like, how can you not say what your thing is is good? Why are you not allowed to say that? Whereas if you go to like, and it's like if you go into bars in Glasgow, there's not many bars that play just bands from Glasgow, or you know, what I mean that kind of thing. Whereas see if you go to Manchester, every single bar in Manchester plays Oasis, they play the Roses, they play all the bands from Manchester because they're proud of them. There's a different mentality up here with things like that for some reason, and I don't know why it is, and I don't know how to change that. You know, it was like when we got a, like a little bit of success, a lot of people get really jealous of it, 
rather than being like, that's amazing, they're for, they're for Glasgow or whatever. It, it kind of flipped the other side, but who knows? That's that, that that's something for another time to talk about, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I, I guess that I've noticed it in the, the kind of other side of the, the coin recently where, especially when you mentioned the stats, that their success was so well received by, by almost everyone that, and it, it felt like a kind of new age where there used to be quite a lot of bitterness and, and kind of sideswiping going on, but instead it just seemed like the whole kind of scene had, had united as one and we're just really delighted for these guys achieving such great success. And, and why shouldn't we be? I know, exactly. I know. And I, I, I think it's absolutely amazing what they've done. Absolutely fucking amazing. Just for somebody that's playing a guitar, for starters, to have got to number one, because it doesn't happen. I mean, Mogwai did it a few months back, which was... I was so fucking proud of them because they, they kind of deserve a number one, the amount of work that they've put in over the years. And now there's nuts and it's just like, it's, I, I know how difficult it is to get anywhere and it's for them to have did that on their first record, it's just fucking incredible. They deserve a pat in the back, so. Looking at the the music going on to, to MySpace, was was that a wee bit of a, an indicator of the, the early power of, of social media as well? Because that, that seemed to really kind of broaden the horizons of the band and, and take them out to a much wider audience because at the time and it's hard to believe 15 years on that I don't even know if it exists anymore but it was a platform that was was absolutely massive well above the likes of, of Facebook and Twitter. Big, big time I mean I think the thing is that I have to be realistic about it and say that if we hadn't put our music on MySpace I don't really know if the band would have got as big as what we did because it was through um, MySpace we would be put on what was called the home tapes, which was essentially just demos that James had recorded uh, on an acoustic guitar. Um, and then that was when, so what happened was we had, Alan had came to season King Tuts and there was like five people there. And Alan said, you need to put your songs on MySpace, get them out to people and book another gig at King Tuts. So we booked another gig at King Tuts and it sold out. Now, at that point, we still hadn't promoted it band we hadn't did anything I don't know how people like and then people were sharing the songs and stuff I don't know how that happened this was just one of those things that's like a wee guy in a flat heard one of your songs passed it to his mate and it, and, and it was it was total word of mouth and I remember we, we we didn't know that King Tuts had sold it and we walked on stage and I was like there's a lot of fucking people here <laughs> and, then, and, and then they sang every word to every song because they were all because all the songs were online and I was just like, and I, I just, yeah, and I sort of like talking about, I guess, even again, the influence of Alan. That was Alan that said, book another gig. It will say, look, get your songs out. Um, and then I guess after that, that's when, when things kind of started taking off a wee bit in a good way. Just the last one on the, the gigs around that time, the, there was a trio of, of prison gigs as well, Pullman, Berlin and Stockton as well. What was the, the rationale behind that and what was the experience like? So... The manager, Denise, uh, had been a social worker and she worked with Geraldine as well. So that's how we know Geraldine, because Denise and Geraldine were, were friends. So Denise had to go into prisons quite a lot with some of the people she was looking after. And I, I guess Denise kind of knew the power of music and what music could do for people. So she booked us in to do a few shows, which some of them ended up being pure carnage. Yeah, Berlini was great. Um, we did Pullman Young Offenders. Uh, we did uh, the Women's Prison, Cottonville, which was that that was that was one of the most um, 
insightful ones because we were kind of sitting talking to the prisoners in between songs and they were just telling us stories about their families. It was it was incredible. I mean, it was some it was quite touching, to be honest. Like the way. Anyway, that's that's another story. Then we did one in Edinburgh where they were throwing pool balls at us whilst we were playing, which meant they liked us. Apparently, I don't I don't know if somebody was just taking the piss. But what happened was that after we'd signed the deal, after we toured the world, we came back and we played in Pullman again. We took in a whole full PA, like we were playing the Barras into the into the sports hall, and we played a gig for them. And we we told them the story of the song Pullman, and we told them that we toured the world and everybody sang it wherever we went. And the kids were all gone mental. And after that, a few of the boys that had been at that gig got out of prison and started bands, and stayed and stayed out of prison. So I guess if you can kind of have an impact on one person your music then it's kind of worth it and I guess maybe those those gigs hopefully did have some kind of impact I was shitting myself to be honest like if walking into a prison that was like well, plenty of murderers and stuff it wasn't like low-level offenders <laughs> um but I, I, it was an experience um and yeah I mean it's it's something I'd probably like to do again but I, it, it was quite difficult to set all that up I think yeah, I can imagine, but the, the, here's a stand up in the, in the arms here. It's, just, it's, a, it's a properly inspiring story. That, and Perhaps if you, you just look at it from a, a black and white point of view, you don't see the kind of deeper meaning or the, the reasoning behind that. Uh, I know. But to, to hear the kind of the part played in the rehabilitation process, that's that's massive. Um, that's kind of life changing stuff that can be done by not such a simple project, but just a an hour or two of you guys coming up and, and playing music and that <clears throat> can encourage people to change their lives. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's quite a lot of like, kind of community music projects that do that. They go into prisons and they help people and they kind of um, do songwriting workshops with them. And, and it's just to give them an outlet for their creativity because a lot of people in prison have never really had the opportunities that even say what I've had. And some, you know, sometimes a, such a small thing can have such a large impact on someone. So... You never know. That's exactly. It. You never know the impact of doing something like can can have on someone. Another big part of the journey was Tim Jones and what turned out to be a, a pretty calculated gamble on his part in releasing a thousand copies of Daddy's Gone, uh, despite the fact he hadn't actually released anything prior to that. And, and then there's another boom that led to the sellout of Daddy's Gone, yeah. the Ian Brown tour, and and then the single being number two in the the NME uh, single of the year vote as well. Yeah. So the, the publicity around the band prior to even an album coming out was just huge. Do you know what? I, well, it, it was such a strange thing. There's there's a few a few steps to that. The funny thing was Tim Jones. So Tim Jones just one night happened to be in one of Alan McGee's club nights and saw us, and he said, "I want to release a single for you," and he'd never did it before. So Tim used the deposit for his house. <laughs> And never, <laughs> never told his wife <laughs> that that was the money he was using to fund this single. Uh, luckily, he obviously made made all the money back and then some, so that 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 was good for him. But um, Tim was a pivotal person in the early days for the band. And the funny thing is, Tim worked for the enemy, but Tim didn't want to tell people at the enemy that he'd put the single out, so he just took it in and he said, "Oh, I've heard this band. What do you think?" And everyone loved it. Then he said, I actually recorded this and did this for them. So it, it was quite a nice touch doing that. Um, but yeah, the 
press and all that in the early days was just insane, like how much people loved the band. And I think some, I think again, some of that came down to the fact that we were quite abnormal to what was going on in music at the time, like being working class, probably looking the way we looked, looking like a gang, um, actually like saying something and not just, not just like, I, I, I don't like to generalise, but a lot of people who are in bands and who are musicians are quite middle class. And I think sometimes it's made easy for them. So I guess when somebody from a working class background writes a song like Stabbed or a song like Daddy's Gone, there's maybe more um, people really want to know where that's came from. you know. And I think that there was a lot of pressure put on James with that kind of thing, with the press and all the exposure. Um, and I think that was probably quite hard, actually, in the early days. But it was, it was a good thing as well. To 2008 and the I said the boom earlier on but the explosion kind of happened in 2008 with the, the album being recorded in New York and then the summer just looking through the, the last year in the park connect playing with Muse Kings of Leon it's just as I said that it kind of goes back to the bucket list type thing but how is it the first experience of Teen the Park and the reaction you got there because you weren't particularly high up the bill in your first appearance at Teen the Park, but the, the tent was absolutely jammed. So what happened was we we got booked to play Teen the Park and we were like, yeah, we're in the Futures tent during the day. There'll be like five people there. That's just quite naive on our part and I'm, I'm, I'm still like that. So we turned up to do the festival and I'd never been to Teen the Park. I fucking hate festivals. Don't judge me, right? but I don't like festivals for some reason. It's just, it's not my bag. I like, I like being quite warm and wrapped up and being cosy at a gig. So, it would be on me now as well, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we turned up at Teen Park and uh, I didn't really know what to expect. So we, we got to the stage and there was a guy there and he was like, so we're expecting you know, your gig to be quite rowdy. And they talk you through this thing, we, they show you cards and it's like, if they show you a red card, you need to come off stage because there's, like, there's too many people in the tent or whatever it is has happened. So we were like, right, no ball. So we went away and did our press and we came back and we were driving around the back in the queue to get in the tent because the tent was full. And then I saw a guy pull out a knife and cut a hole in the tent and everybody just started piling in. And I was just like, what the fuck's going on here? Like, <laughs> I, I, like I, I thought it was for someone else. I didn't, I, because I just hadn't expected it. And then there was like, all these security like trying to hold the tent shut because this guy like ripped it and all. And I was just like, this is bizarre. Um, and then during the gig, do you know what? I, I have got no memories for that gig for some reason. When I think back to it, I just I don't remember anything because I think it was just I was just totally like lost in it. And yeah, that 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 was one of those mad pivotal things I think for us. Uh, and I've seen videos back of it and people show me photos and. The only thing I remember thinking before it was, I hope my mum's okay, because I knew my mum was in the tent. And that's a weird memory to have. I hope my mum's all right, but that, that's that's what I kept thinking. So then apparently during the gig, the guy ran on with the card to kind of try and cancel the gig because it was like crazy. And Geraldine grabbed the card off him and like pushed him off the stage and was like, get the fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it kind of it went ahead and, and, and it was what it was. But yeah, we did that, that was 2008. And then in 2009, we did the... the it was at the Radio One tent. I'm not the King Tots tent. We, I was, I was in the Manic Street Preachers co-headlined it. That was a bizarre gig as well. Like just so many people. Yeah. Uh, well, it must be the most incredible thing to look, to look out and see 
people for as, as far as far as you can possibly see. And and then as you say, the folk happened to take such extreme measures to actually to see, to see the band. It's and, and I, I it's, it's a kind of touching thing that someone's willing to jeopardise taking out a knife at a festival and cutting <laughs> through the tent to, to go and see you. Do, do you know what? It's, that's the kind of fans that we seem to have. They're just like pure diehard, passionate music fans. And it's just like, it's, it's such a nice thing. Like, and it's funny because I'm friends with a lot of the fans of the band and I get married and I had some of them at my wedding and stuff. And it's like, because people are just people and, and you become mates with people over the years. But um, like a lot of those guys from the early days are still here now and, and we've all got families together and we all keep in touch and text. And it's, it's a great thing. Like, but thinking back to the, we were talking about the King Tuts thing, the, the second one that we did in the the, uh, the King Tuts tent, I remember there was a guy had climbed one of the, like, you know, the big kind of bits that hold the tent up in the middle. It's like a big, like, standing thing, and he'd climbed up to the top of it. So a normal person would be like, oh, I hope he's all right. Everybody started shouting jump at the guy. I, I've, I've got vague recollections of that, but I, I, I was kind of trying to remember whether that was that same year. <laughs> that, so that that was the second year this, that was in the King Tut's tent and I remember standing on stage thinking why the fuck are they telling this guy to jump I was like this is just like, bizarre like, yeah. reassuring the people that have been on the bevy for days at a time are confident they're going to catch someone jumping for 30 feet as well that's... exactly exactly so that's that's Scotland for you and that's why you know that's why I fucking love Scotland because that's it's <laughs> no, 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 the only places in the world where somebody's going to cut a hole in a tent and somebody's going to tell somebody to jump off like a 30 foot pole so <laughs> and then when the album came out and got to number two in the charts, losing out to a small band from America, Metallica, uh, it's just whirlwind times. And the album was nominated for the Mercury Award as well. Yep. Was it the difficult time as well? James missed the awards. It was burnout beginning to, to kick in because it had been quite a well. We spent the best part of half an hour talking about it in abbreviated terms, but so much has been crammed into even our conversation on it, it, it must have been quite exhausting. You talked about the the emotionally draining process of having to talk about the deeper meanings behind songs as well. Yeah. I, I can't imagine how much mental strain that would begin to take. I mean, I've never spoke to James about it directly, so I can't really tell you about his experiences, but I can tell you about his experiences from what I think. It's like that, that time was just difficult because... On a, it was really difficult on a, on, on a really basic level, first of all, which was it was four working class people who'd, like, my mum had three jobs when I was growing up to try and feed the family, right? To go from that to somebody giving you, like, six figures of money in your bank account, it was just that, I mean, that that was a head fucking on its own. Do you know what I mean? Like, feeling like you hadn't earned that money. Then you're on the road for the best part of 250 days a year probably more than that to be honest and then nobody's there to kind of look after you you're drinking constantly you're not getting enough sleep you're not eating properly the ups and the downs are doing the gigs every night so when you when you add all of those things in it was a pure head fuck and like i, I struggled big time i think I, I probably struggled more than more than james and paul did although i could be making that up i don't know because we've never spoke but like for me the mental health side it was just it was just like bizarre um, and I think I was quite lucky that we had we had Geraldine until Geraldine sold merchandise, but she she was also a social worker and she knew kind of what to look out for with those things. So in terms of like the effect that had on us all, 
I'm surprised that we're still mates and I'm surprised that we're all still alive. That is, and that sounds really dramatic, but that's but that's that's true, you know, because of the, the amount of shit that went down and the amount that we partied and the amount that we drank. Like somebody should be dead, <laughs> you know. So that's a, a real credit to, to Geraldine in the, the sense that the stigma around mental health is something that, as a band, you guys have have addressed a lot. Yeah. Uh, Ten, eleven years ago. Certainly, there wasn't the same support networks and and obvious kind of paths to for help. Uh, yeah. And it's I, I uh, I'm a big football fan, and I saw it recently there was a, a young guy that had had disappeared and, and real concerns. And thankfully, it was incredible the the way that his favourite bands, uh, all the players on the, the team and everything else are, are all reaching out, supporters. It's just saying, please speak. And I, I think if if a young guy had done that ten years ago, either there wouldn't be the platform there to to make that really public cry for help, which I think is an exceptionally brave thing to do. Mm. And, and secondly, it would almost be kind of scowled at or or looked down upon. Whereas now there is these these ways to speak out and and be heard, and it's it's, it's such a big thing. It's amazing how much progression. There's still a hell of a lot of a way to go in terms of, of repairing what I believe is a mental health crisis across the world, really. But in terms of the way that people approach it is, is a lot different. Whereas yeah. when when that was happening 10, 11 years ago, I don't, I don't even know personally whether I would have really understood or, or kind of even wanted to understand. Whereas it's just amazing how the world's kind of changed greatly. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing. I didn't know what was happening. I couldn't explain to people how I was feeling. So then, then that started making me feel bad because I was like, I've got all of these amazing things. Like the, the 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 memory that always sticks in my head was that our manager had came to see us on the NME tour, and she came in the dressing room and she said, "You two want you to do the stadium tour with them," and I remember feeling absolutely nothing. I didn't feel like happy I didn't bear in mind this is like about a year after we've signed a record deal less less than a year and I, I just felt nothing and I was like why don't I feel happy or excited or and that that's the first memory that I've got I could kind of be like there's something not right here like you know and it's, it's a hard thing to explain and I guess like you were saying like imagine I'd came out and said that 10 11 years ago and been like I've got all this money I've got all this success but I'm not happy somebody would be like what's wrong with you but that's not really how it works. It's like having money and success doesn't equate to your mental health being good and all these things. And I think that's what people are starting to understand now as well, which is good and people are speaking about it more. Yeah, it's, it's so crucial. And as I said, I don't know whether that uh, bit of the story there, because I, I spoke to the lad personally on quite a few occasions since then, but it's just so, it's, it's so powerful how many people speak like there's my phone number, there's this, there's that, and that just doing everything they possibly can to help someone. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't really matter who you come from, who you are, what your beliefs are. Like nobody, nobody that's a, a proper human being should want to see any other human being struggle. And that's that's be all and end all. Whether you're a, a multi-millionaire or or whether you're absolutely not got a pot to piss in, exactly. we're all in the same world, and it's just uh, I, I I was quite touched for the guy almost like I just thought it's just so spectacular how 
how people have changed and how people's approach to, to these situations has changed. Yeah, no, so that's my wee kind of insight to it. But I, I completely understand how, how hollow some things can be when you're just emotionally drained and Exactly. Exactly. And, and and that's the, so I mean that that went on for a while. So I mean the, the first break we had as a band was about 2015, I think. So we I mean we were kind of constant from 2006 to about 2014-2015. So that's why when when we'd started recording Godspeed, the most recent album, we'd started it. And we were just like we need, we just need a break. We just need a wee bit of like decompression, kind of gather ourselves again, and 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 that's what happened. And it's it's made such an impact on the band and each of us as individuals and stuff it's, it was the best thing we could have done see if we move on to the second album euphoric heartbreak yep. there was a, a lengthy period you took in, in santa monica to record that and then it took you to, to london and glasgow yep. I, I thought the, the way that you released it, it was a really classy way and it was it was almost kind of involving the fans that had helped you on the way up they were the first to to hear the, the stuff being road tested and then there was all sorts of kind of promotions and additional extras that were, were added in. Uh, was that was that just a, a nod of the head almost to, to those who had made the self-titled album such a, a roaring success? I mean, I, if you just take it down to its basic level, it's all about fans. It's the same argument that's going on with football, isn't it? It's like we can make good music and stuff, but see if people only there kind of in your corner fighting for you and that's kind of what, what a lot of our fans do is they, they're kind of in the corner fighting for us which is such a nice thing so that's why when things like that come up like I remember there was a bunch of guys that drove up from Glasgow to see us in Forest one night when we were doing the, the little Scottish tour and we took them all on the tour bus and played the full album for them and nobody had heard any of it yet and they were just like losing their shit because <laughs> they were so excited about it and it's like such a small thing can have such a massive impact on someone and um like whenever we do shows now we always try and go out and meet fans after the, the gig and do photos and all those kind of things because it's 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 never enough for what they give you so when it, when it comes to like things like we did all that stuff in the second album it, it didn't really seem like a hard decision to do um i mean the, the record company didn't really know what to do with the album so a lot of those ideas kind of came from us so yeah what about uh, headlining the, the John Peel stage? It's, it's yet another one of these bucket list moments. The Glastonbury, undoubtedly the biggest festival in the world, and to to headline the John Peel stage as well, such a, a champion of of new music. The the John Peel tent was one of those moments where I, I felt quite nervous, and I don't get nervous very often. And I remember we had got to the festival site, and I went to have a look at the tent. And it was fucking massive. And I thought, nah, this is a bit too big for us. Because this was, I think that was before the album had been released, actually. Oh, no, sorry. I'm oh, sorry, we did it in the second record as well. So sorry, I apologise. That's maybe what you're talking about. Um, so we've, we've done it twice. But the first time, I remember thinking, nah, this is too big. And it was absolutely rammed. Then we did it in the second record. I think we headlined it, actually. Uh, you headlined it the second time. Uh, uh, do you know what? I, I think it was mad, right? But what had happened was the second thing was there was uh, the weather at that Glastonbury was absolutely shocking. And about half an hour before we were due on, they put up the big screens, don't go to the John Peel tent. The mud's too bad. 
So it's like, what kind of chance have you got when the festival's telling people not to come and see your band? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, it was still busy and it was still good, but I just, I, I remember thinking back, like, fucking hell. Yeah. I, that, that's one of these things that, that seems to have happened to you across your career. So there's been obstacles put in your way, but with the, the support that you've got and also the attitude of you guys, you just knocked them down and, and just got on with it, really. Do you know what? It's just like... An obstacle is an obstacle, do you know what I mean? It's like we don't, we've never made music to to headline the John Peel tent. We've never made music to, to for, for everybody to come up and look pat in the back. It's like, I, I said for day one when we were doing interviews, even if nobody liked the band, I would still be doing this and doing it this way because that's just what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to like play guitar on songs because that's, that I, I think I'm quite good at it and I think James writes good songs and Paul's good at it. So it's like, even if we did this and nobody came to see the band, we would still be doing it. And I think that's just, I think we've kind of proved that now getting to this point that we're still doing it. It's like, we're just doing it because we enjoy it. And I think when you enjoy it, it that can, you know, other people can recognise that as well. Uh, absolutely does. And there's, I've mentioned the word bucket list about 400 times now, but there's, there's something you did that was in my own bucket list and I just can't ignore it. Is it true you were served a pint by Luke Carpenter from Neighbours? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, but that's not even the best story. Oh, I get thrown off the set of Neighbours. Uh, <laughs> you can't not tell me this story. No, no of course I've. Of course I'll tell you. So what happened was we um, we were in Australia touring and we were like, the word like a like a, a guide that would drive us about, everyone take us about. So there was this girl, I can't even remember her name, that's terrible. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I, I want to go and see the set of Neighbours. And so did James and so did Paul. So she took us to, to Ramsey Street, we saw the houses, and then she actually took us to where they filmed, <laughs> where they filmed Neighbours. So we watched a wee bit of it, and we met Luke Carpenter, and we were in all the houses and talked to Luke Carpenter. That, that was just, I don't even know the guy's real name. So then they took us outside where they were, like, filming, and I seen they've got the sign for um, uh, for Ramsey Street. So I climbed up, and I took the sign down, and I kidded on, I was, like, fucking the sign. And there's a photo of this on my Facebook so anybody that's on my Facebook can look through my photos and see it and it's like somebody somebody came over and said we think it's time for you to go now so that was um, yeah that was an experience of being on the set of Neighbours quite a Neighbours experience I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed that that didn't make half past five in the BBC <laughs> do you know what it was amazing it's weird like coming for, like, coming for Glasgow and you love Neighbours and then what happened was when we get down there, they hired a photographer to come and take photos of us because it was like a big deal that a band for the UK like Neighbours. So like there was photographs in the paper of us liking Neighbours. It was it was a yeah, it was a, a mad experience. But to be honest, there's been so many like mad things like that that, that we've done. Like see when you see when you travel the world in your Glaswegian and you're with your best mates. <sighs> honest, some of the stories I could fucking tell you that if we ever do a second podcast at some point, you know. They would make your skin crawl, and you'd probably be proud to be Scottish at the same time. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, do you know? I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll have a pint man time, and we can talk about the more a pint. I'm sure that will happen. Oh, d- definitely. I'm well up for that. <laughs> when regarding the, the third album, I know it's quite a lot through the the history of the band that, that Sweden's always been a significant location. Now, of course, James has moved to, to Sweden, but you've always been so well supported and received there. Yeah. And, chose to road test the, the third album on Swedish crowds yep. and it was massive crowds at that. Yeah, 
I think, you know, I don't really know why that is. Scandinavia in general has always been really, um, really kind to the band. Do you know what? I'd be making up if I told you why. I don't know. I'm just really grateful. I mean, we're, we're, we're a bigger band in Sweden than we are in Scotland. Like, we, you know, yeah, we play bigger venues there. Like, we've done arenas there and stuff. It's just fucking, it's bizarre. Um, we've had a number one there as well. <laughs> Who can figure that out? Um, but yeah, James moved there and he's he's back living in Glasgow now. His fiance is Swedish, so yeah, there's there's loads of Swedish ties. Our, our last drummer, Jonas, she was Swedish as well. So yeah, have you ever been to Sweden? I have not. No, I've been to Norway and Denmark, but that's that's the missing missing link. I just can't afford a pint there. I think that's the problem. <laughs> Oh, do you know, join the join the queue. We're all the same. Like an eight pound a pint. It's insane. I know. Do you know? It's a beautiful country, and they're they're really into their music. Um, yeah, I, th- I think we're, we're supposed to be going back there next year to do some gigs, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. But again, I mean, I, I don't know if it's like a Viking thing with the Scottish people and the Scandinavian people, or what, what it is, but there was just a connection there, and they fell in love with the band, and yeah, it was great. Yeah, both, both the, the Scandinavian countries I've been to have been absolutely remarkable places. They, they don't seem to judge us very much either when we have to go to the carriage shop and... <laughs> stand outside I can because it's saying that to be fair the way that they they treat you and they, they realise you're Scottish as well is is incredible they're uh, they're so welcoming so like so lovely they could they like they can't do enough for you and it's yeah I mean I, I hope that if Scandinavian people ever come here Scottish people would do the same but I don't know if they would <laughs> you know but um, yeah I mean there are there are a real bunch of people yeah, and that's the support has been absolutely incredible. I, I guess from the outside looking in, touring the world, having the adulation that Las Vegas have achieved, it sounds like a dream. But there also seems like there were some issues behind the scenes with the label at the time of the third album, and perhaps the album not drawing quite the same commercial success as the the previous two. Did that almost act as a tipping point towards moving towards going out? on your own and kind of taking it into your own hands well i mean so what happened was we signed a deal with columbia so we released the first record on columbia then we released the second record on columbia and they dropped us the week that the second album came out even though the album went top 10 because we were just fucking bonkers and they couldn't control us <laughs> i'll be honest with you so they knew that they were never going to make their money back off us. And I think at that point, instead of working the album, because the album should have been a lot bigger than it was, but they just they stopped working it the week that the week that the album came out, which is just bizarre look, look, looking back on it. So we finished the second album cycle and then we signed with BMG for the third album. And that was essentially just a bank loan. Um, when they gave us some money to kind of make, I, we, we funded the third album again ourselves and then we, we did it through BMG. But they just seemed a bit lazy and didn't really bother with it. And so then that was definitely the catalyst for, for me personally that this time I was like, why are we going to give someone else this job when they might not care about it, when they might not get it and all those kind of things. So that's that's kind of why we decided just to put our own team together. And we're lucky that we're in a, in a fortunate position that we can do that, that we can pay to get all, all these things made and pay to make an album and um, without having to bring 
an investor in or somebody who's going to take a large cut of money back like we make all the money from streams we make all the money from record sales we make all the money from gigs it's like merch we keep every single penny which is really good for us and it's a shame like i see some younger bands that i know are kind of giving a lot of that shit away and it's like i do feel bad for them but i guess you need to and like in the early days we, we would never be this big if we hadn't signed with columbia in the first place so yeah sorry i'm going off on a tangent here with my thoughts but no, no, no. I, I, I guess what you're saying there as well, without trying to put words in your mouth, is that some of the younger bands might need to to kind of learn the the harsh lessons of of the industry, and that not everyone's looking out for you and is going to do do right by you all the time. There is kind of it's a it's a difficult path to tread sometimes. Exactly, exactly. And, and the thing is, I have to be honest, Colombia were absolutely amazing. They were absolutely amazing. They made a couple of stupid mistakes, but on the whole, they kind of let us control everything because that was written into our contract that we controlled everything. <laughs> pure, pure, pure. Oh, we were we, we were a pure horror show, but it was like because James had such a vision for everything, it kind of had to be that way. And um, yeah, Columbia, honest, Columbia were great. So that's why when I see bands like the Snuts and other bands signing to majors, I know that good things are going to happen for them. But it's just understanding all the other things that can happen as well and kind of behind the scenes. But all, all of these bands are big enough and grown up enough and ugly enough to, to look after themselves. I'm sure the same way we were. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of one of these ones where you're once bitten, twice shy, but you've got to maybe experience these these difficult times or, or the kind of harsh realities before you can then move away and, and adjust from it. Uh, Exactly. exactly. So, uh, so you guys are, are obviously back. There's a glimmer of light. I can see looking out my window, there is a, about a fraction of blue sky uh, as we go into the weekend here. The, the tour is planned for early 2022. Yep. You must just be kind of like Grace Tigers now, desperate to, to get back out and, and play gigs. It's been, it feels like a hell of a long time. Do you know what I am? And it's funny, like, so I think we're doing the UK in February and Europe in March. I think that's the plan. Um, and I f- so I'm, I'm at uni doing a PhD just now. And that's what I've been working on during this whole kind of lockdown period. So I feel a bit like a caged animal. I feel like I'm ready to go out and cause a bit of trouble. So I'm kind of working towards these gigs. I'm like, same as everyone else, I haven't had a holiday or anything. So I'm really, really excited to just go out and play some, play some songs. Um, and I'm just glad people again want to come and see the band. So, yeah, I'm going to go absolutely fucking batshit crazy is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and, have a, and have a really good time. <laughs> and and well, well as well, that are fortunate enough to attend. How was the, the live stream uh, experience? It was, it was quite surreal sitting watching it in the living room, I must say, in terms of you just didn't really... It, it, you've got all the emotion of the gig without the... I don't know, I just I paid for maybe five or six of them over the course of the pandemic and never once have I come away just with that same feeling as you do at the end of a gig. Yeah, you're happy that it's a reminder that live music exists yeah. and, and you know that you're, you're supporting the acts that you love. But at the same time, it's it's just a, it's what I would possibly imagine that the football would be attending a, a closed doors match. It's not got that that atmosphere and that soul that comes with a crowd 
Do you know what it is? But the, I guess with us, we've had to learn to kind of just turn that thing on because we've done TV shows and like, you know, closed those things before. We just still need to try and get that emotion across and get the the, the, the vibe across that, that would normally be there when there's a crowd. So as a band, I think we've got quite good at being able to kind of switch that on when we need to. And the, I mean, the, the, the live thing was a bit bizarre because there was like four people there watching it it was you know but I, I was just that happy to be playing music with a band that I, I had a great time <laughs> I was like see if I'm having a good time and I've had a few beers I hope that anybody watching it gets that vibe and that they're having a good time as well and I think that kind of happened I hope it happened um because as you said the live stream thing I've seen a few and some of them are a bit hit and miss and yeah I hope, I hope it, it can it's kind of it's a double-edged sword for me I, I, it kind of it takes you back to happier times it was it was only what it would have been maybe the, the weekend before lockdown that the, the firewater gig was so that there wasn't much time between that and and kind of everything just stopping yeah you're right yeah i know and it, it was funny because i remember being at the firewater thing and everyone knew what covid was and i remember like everyone was coughing and spluttering i was like we're all gonna die because <laughs> <at that point, laughs> nobody knew what covid really was and i was like we're all gonna die here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That was such a, uh, it was it was a great night that as well. In in terms of just for a, a great cause and, and people all coming together, there's there's nothing better than that. And I, I think that's a wee bit of the the thing with the the live streams that it just kind of reminds you of these times. It also provides a reminder that these times touch wood here aren't too far away. But the uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a difficult one. But I completely see the merits of it. And in, in terms of bands enjoying themselves that that definitely comes through in the performance um but there is there has been kind of other ones where i've kind of not wanted to get a refund but i was just kind of thought <laughs> oh, i didn't quite enjoy that quite as much <laughs> or maybe going to leave a one word review that it was shit <laughs> was it you that said that the new album was shit is this what you're telling me you're telling me oh, con- con- confession <laughs> time uh, 55 <laughs> minutes into the conversation <laughs> <laughs> No, it certainly wasn't. <laughs> I'll put you on the spot with the, the last question of the podcast. Okay. I'll ask all my guests this. Scottish bands that the listeners may not have heard that you really think they should have heard. If you've got two or three there, they would be much obliged. Of course, there's a band. So my, my favourite Scottish band just now is a band called Lucia and the Best Boys. Um she is just absolutely incredible. She released an EP at the end of last year called Let Go. And that is like, it's, it's incredible. Uh, there's another band called Dead Pony, who I absolutely love. And that's a two-piece, although live, there's, there's, there's more of them. Um, and the other artist who, uh, who is actually pretty well known already is a guy, a soul singer called Joseph from um, the East End of Glasgow. Uh, and he is going to blow up like a major pop star in the next year, year and a half. So... Yeah, that's probably the three Scottish artists. I mean, there's other ones like like I like Walt Disco and um, uh, Declan Welsh as well. But yeah, and there's, there's so much. I think just now in, in Scotland is the has been the best time for new music in quite a few years. So yeah, I, I think that it's going to be such a a time where people are so desperate for, especially live music. I think that. It, the scene's going to be absolutely incredible for for quite some time. Hopefully, yeah. from now going forward, that 
people kind of they'll be desperate to, to have nights out and, and everything else in a and an authentic level. They've had a heavy taster for it from whether it be live streams or and now the kind of socially distanced gigs are are coming back. Uh, but you you look at that festival in Liverpool last week and oh that looked amazing. <laughs> I was so jealous. <laughs> So have you, have you got any festivals over the over the summer planned? Is is that we do? So um, we're doing a Victoria's Festival in Portsmouth. We are doing a uh, is it? Oh, there's a few other ones. They're all on the Las Vegas socials if you want to see them. <laughs> um, I can't remember. I think we've got maybe four or five this year. Although I've got a feeling some of them might get rescheduled. Um, but yeah, I mean, I th- hopefully we can maybe get a wee gig or two squeezed in at the end of the year as well. Um, that that's what I'd like to do. But who who, who knows? I think the next one in Glasgow is an SWG three in February, so I'm really looking forward to that. No, as am I, mate. Robert, this has been an absolute pleasure, mate. I'm so pleased that you've spent the last hour in my company. Uh, I can't wait to do it again because I'm already trying to tie you down for a, a second podcast here. Of course. Uh, your stories are absolutely compelling. Thank you very much, mate. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Scottish Indie Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight's time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Start. Breathe. Hatch. Begin. See. Dream. Come. Go. Appear, disappear, reappear, remember the future, predict the present, guess wrong, guess lose, guess more, guess less, rev, 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 say yes, observe, understand, look, look, lock, snap, hang photographs, crawl, crawl, crawl. Rise, cry, stand, step, step, fall, cry, laugh, cry with laughter, stand alone, run, speed, race, fall, forget, bleed, read, heal, need, imagine, Halt. Got chisels under a skull. Travel. Unravel. Eclipse your will. Collect. Reflect. Expect. Release. Disconnect. Perfect. Play. Speak. Sing. Bleed. Tell. Smash. Break, admire, regret, romanticize, criticize, fantasize, crucify, watch things fly by, wonder why, hardly try, propel high, time, enlighten, feel frightened, dance, doubt, dance, enchant. Make 